Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. without white folks and be able to raise the question what is it that we're going to do independent of white people it is very very hard for us to envision a world without white people but we cannot create our own agenda until and unless we can define an agenda that can envision a world in which they don't exist now we have to wake up and come back to the reality of them but certainly when we talk about a future, we have to talk about a future from our point of view and our historical understanding of reality. Salbona, Indominesh, Indomina, Majwo, Anisogoma, Nangadeth, Peace, War, Pan-African Greetings Family, Abaragani, everyone. Today's Kwanzaa, first day of Kwanzaa. So the response is Umoja. So I'd say Habaragani, you'd say Umoja, Habaragani, and then I'd say Umoja back. This is Kamal Mukasey Tahuti. I'm your host of Africa's Reascension. As we do every show, start off with our pie, our libation which deliberately calls upon the energies of our African gods, our African spirits, and the forces of those yet born to guide and bless this endeavor. I go, I go, I go. Odumakuman, Inyame, Inyamewa, Tritiapon, Olorum, Amin-Ra, Beje and Sai. Asasiya insa, abasun insa, abasun po insa, nanasurjibi insa, nanasiketuwa insa, nanadadakofi insa, nanatigare, nanatigare, nanatigare insa, nanakumi insa, kwekufri insa, akonadi abena insa, asubontin insa, bochurewa insa, taminsa insa, oya insa. Oshun insa, Shango, Shango, Shango insa, Herukahuti insa, Chehuti insa, Nananom insamanfo insa, Insamanfo abasuafau insa, Abasum, abasufau insa, Yeshremo yansa, Yeshremo ahodin. Yeshremo and Chera, Yeshremo Sikapa, Yeshremo and Kwasu, Yeshremo Ap, Yeshremo Apaucha, 
Yeshremo and Kwaso Abasua Fao. Yay and Kwaso. As at you, Odomakuman and Yame and Yame Wa, to use me and this form to impart clarity and cultural consistency to all within the sound of my voice. May I speak directly to your Sun your spirit, and reawaken the long, dormant, asleep African inside. Medasipa, Medasibio, Mo Piafo, Mo Ne Casa, Medasi Nanano, Yo Medasi Nanano. The Apaya libation is an ancient practice that is still done to this day in all rural traditional areas throughout the continent. Past, present, and future become one as those of tomorrow look upon what we are doing now and drawing strength from and doing the rituals of yesterday. Whew. All right. Africa's reascension. Come out of the case of Tahuti. Um, call the number seven six zero four five four one 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 one. I want to say Madasi again. Thank you to everyone who's in the call queue, who's in the chat room, who has been downloading the shows and listening to them and passing them on to your friends by the tens and twenties and hundreds. Uh, please keep it up. Please keep it up. Um, today we're going to um, conclude our discussion of the book Fighting the Slave Trade, um, do a small recap of what we talked about last week as far as the um, three aspects that we use to defend ourselves on the continent. We don't hear about this. Um, the defensive aspects, the protective aspects, and then tonight we'll talk about some uh, more of the um, offensive strategies that we use to fight back um, African sellouts um, whose extension today are your black Republicans and black conservatives and just self-hating black folks in general, and helping out. <clears throat> and they were helping out, of course, the Caucasoids, who if they don't create the demand for the Ma'afa for the enslavement system, it would not have happened. And so for everyone that wants to fully only focus on, well, we know self-assessing slavery. Shut up, fool. Read some of the history. Actually, read some of the history that's done by um, conscious black folks in the area of the Ma'afa, of our enslavement, because most of the literature that's out now, that's being published now on slavery, um, follows the Caucasoid train of thought and it focuses on us helping. There's journal article after journal article digging up those of us who help, those of us who help. And while that information is important, we need to know our sellouts. Uh, it takes the larger eye, it takes the larger blame off of, again, those who created the whole system in the first damn place, Caucasoids. Uh, so, yeah. So what we'll do now, um, play a promo, maybe a thing of music, see what Blog Talk left me with this week, <laughs> and um, then we'll do a recap and then get into the talk. Wow, they took a whole bunch of stuff. 
Welcome to the Desert of the Real. Peace, family. This is your brother, Holop, a.k.a. Mr. Holipsis, a.k.a. the Buzz Killer. Tune in to Holipsism's Haven every Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we discuss the social, economic, and political issues of the day with a common-sense approach, an African-centered perspective, and a universal sensibility. Call in number 347-843-4874. That's 347-843-4874. To check out related YouTube videos, blogs, and show archives, visit www.holipsism.com. That's www.holipsism.com. I'm making it hard to get your Negro on. Hotep, Black Power. There's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. Your right great-great-grandfather killed my great-great-grandfather, and your white great-grandfather sold my great-grandfather, and your white grandfather raped my grandmother, and your father stole, cheated, lied, and robbed my father. What kind of a fool would I have to be to say, come, my friend, to the white daughter and son?
while, even though he was a Christian during that time, uh, he was a revolutionary Christian at that time. Um, and we didn't have <laughs> information on the African stuff during his time. So we took what we could, we took, we used everything that we had our, our, at our expense. I'll speak in coherent sentences in a minute. We, at that time, like mid-1800s, late mid-1800s, early 1900s, Gregorian calendar, we took what was at our disposal and used it for our benefit. Um, presently, today, 2010, going into 2011, Gregorian calendar, we have different information. We have new information. So we do not necessarily have to do everything that 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 exactly the same way that um, our folks did them in the past, especially struggling against um, enslavement, and especially when you look at it, um, if they had minimal um, effects in the end. But we can definitely call upon their names. We can definitely know about what they did, and we should definitely um, build upon what they did. Because some folks, no, again, I'm not going to go there. The crew saw rebellion in every dark face, fearing constantly lest their ship erupt into violence. Traders knew that children could carry messages and use their sharp eyes to discover loose nails and other potential weapons that women could use their greater freedom to spy and survey the opportunities for revolts. In fact, studies suggest that slave rebellions were more likely when there were women, when there were more women on board. I just liked that one line, the crew saw rebellion in every dark face. I'm sort of really jumping ahead of myself. That's coming from um, a new book that's not even out yet. It's coming out. No, it just came out last week called American Uprising, the Untold Story of America's Largest Slave Revolt. And we've got another two, three weeks before we get to how we um, resist it here in the States. But I just wanted to, the crew saw rebellion in every dark face. White folks saw rebellion in every face of a black person that they saw at one point in time. When Caucasoids look at the faces of most stolen Africans today, they see assimilation. They see integration. They see black folks wanting to look like, act like, think like, pray like, and be like Caucasoids. So for the most part, they have nothing to fear. So people like me, Olive, Crazy, Kwesi Ra, IOB, we're seen as different. We're seen as crazy. We're seen as um, radicals. <laughs> I remember I did an article one time in my news journal, uh, Radical Properly Defined. And basically it's like, if the house is burning down, are you going to pray that a wind comes? Are you going to pray? 
Are you going to protest and create a petition that um, the fire stops, or are you going to get off your butt and actually put out the fire? And the way it's going now, those of us who are screaming, shit's on fire, we need to put it out, we're deemed as the radicals. And the quote-unquote normal course of action is to march, is to protest, is to pray, is to beg. And so the crew, Caucasoids, do not see rebellion in every black face anymore, which goes to show they have changed up their strategies and intensified them and made them more sophisticated so that we won't rebel, <laughs> so that we stay comfortable in the system, so that we can we may do a little bit of agitating, but it's agitating to be more comfortable within this system. But when other folks come around saying the whole system is messed up and we need to scrap it, and create something different, we're seen as the radical ones. We're seen as the crazy ones. We're seen as the ones not dealing with practical problems. When I look at fighting the slave trade, I think about all the things, all the different tactics that we use to uh, stop these bastards from taking away our family members. Um, Like we said last week, um, you had groups based on their environment using defensive strategies, meaning if they were more in inaccessible areas in the hinterlands that, that, you know, only had maybe one or two ways of entry and exit, that we booby-trapped those um, areas of entrance and exit. And we had um, certain markings, either on the ground or in the trees or in the foliage or whatever, whatnot. Or we may have had lookouts who would um, see friendlies and see enemies coming. And, you know, when the friendlies were coming, then they let them know which way to go to um, avoid the booby traps. or we knew how to read certain friendlies, knew how to read certain markings and stuff so they could avoid the booby traps. So so we used our environment to um, protect ourselves, to defend against the um, invasions. So some groups just, if they were in more accessible areas when they saw um, stupid African sellouts or cogazoids um, trying to come in and slave them, they would, wholesale get up and move to more inaccessible areas um, to protect themselves. Um, Some groups totally reinvented their lives by moving into caves and creating elaborate tunnel ways to get away from the invading um, Caucasoids and their African sellouts to uh, avoid enslavement. Um, so those were a few of some of the, the, of the defensive strategies that we used. Um, and as I mentioned last week, I love the um, Quilombo example that they, of course, got from um, us defending ourselves on the continent as far as we would um, dig large pits into the earth, 
like again those air those groups of people that were real inaccessible and they were um, may have had one or two entryways into their village and to their community, so they would dig big pits um along those entryways and then um they would put spikes or different things at the bottom of the pit and then cover it back up loosely. So then when enemies would come, when raiders would come, and they didn't know how to read all the signs or whatever, whatnot, and they'd fall into the pit and fall on the spikes and die. I just I just like that imagery. Um, now, <clears throat> as far as taking anything away from the defensive strategies for today, um, since we're not in control of our larger environment, uh, we may not be able to use the defensive strategies that were used in the past uh, for our benefit. We'd actually first have to create Fihankras, F-I-H-A-N-K-R-A, which is a Shui word uh, for safe zones or liberated zones. We would actually have to create some or create more first um, and then set up the proper defense mechanisms um, to make sure that they're not um, spied upon, if you will. Um, then you also had um, protective strategies, which the, the 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 authors of those articles and fighting the slave trade and myself, when you look upon it now in hindsight, um, probably wasn't good strategies. So we don't want to reduplicate those again. Um, the protective strategies was, let's say, they took. Um, one of your family members or someone important, majorly important of the community, you would then, uh, within the protective strategy angle, you would then get two or three people and then contact um, the Europeans and be like, let's let's swap. You give us such and such back and we'll give you these two people, we'll give you these three people. And um, as we know now, Parkinsonites are never, never to be trusted. So they would event, they would end up getting <laughs> two, three, four people when they had just had one. Um, and so that strategy didn't work out too well. And so luckily a whole bunch of folks didn't do it, but at least within the historical record, we do see that some folks did try to do it on the continent to get certain people back. Um, you know, it, you do all different sorts of things that you can do, so that's cool. But, yeah, I think I said this last week, too. The same group of people who wrongly and illegally come into your spot and um, take people that don't belong to them can't too well be trusted to um, come to to. They can't be too trusted to be like, okay, you sent us three, so we'll go ahead and send this one back. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm looking in the chat room. in the chat room that one way of a defensive strategy that we could use but won't do are stop paying taxes. 
Um, that's one form of protest these Negroes will not engage in. Think about it. A mother loses her child to the police, i.e. the state, and then if she decides she is not going to pay taxes to the state or the family of the victim decides not to pay either, they'll go to jail. Um, right, that's individuals, exactly. If you get large groups of folks to do that, it would be interesting to see what would happen with the I don't know if you remember the movie The Siege, where, you know, there was some quote-unquote terrorist bombings and then they opened up unused um, baseball fields and set up camps and, and just rounded up <laughs> all Muslim men from, what was that, 18 or 50 or something and had them in these camps and stuff. What they, if 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 black folks, <laughs> if black folks decided en masse we're going to stop paying taxes to protest X, Y, Z, A, B, and C, would they decide to cordon us all off who who were in that grouping um, and go from there? It'd be interesting. I mean, hell, it'd be, <laughs> it'd be something to try. I, I, I'm not going to share my personal um, acceptance of that protest strategy with all my own personal taxes, but it would be interesting to see if more folks did that on a larger scale. Um, I know folks not paying their taxes uh, took a blow. Like, if folks want to do it, it took a blow with the Wesley Snipes case. Because if that shit would have won and he would have got off from not doing that since, you know, he's high profile, a lot of folks would have really <laughs> looked into that and been like, hmm, he got off from doing it. Uh, let's see if I can do it. Because white folks been talking about that and printing books about it at least for the last 20, 30, 40 years, how to legally not pay taxes and get away with and stuff like that. And you see only small pockets of caucasoids dealing with that and doing it. But 95% of black folks ain't, ain't touching that with a 10-foot pole. Hell, 95% of black folks still think the IRS is an actual federal agency, is a governmental agency, which it is not. Uh, and I just saw, oh, dear, Ron Paul. That guy, that's interesting. If he was black, they'd have shot him a long time ago. <laughs> he just wrote a book talking about, um, what was it, Eliminate the Fed? or, or I, I think that's the title. I don't know. Well, it probably was out a year or two ago because I saw it in paperback. But he got a whole book talking about how to get rid of the Fed that's not needed and stuff like that. So it's it's interesting. Right, that's a good point. Yeah, even if Wesley's point was, his case was airtight, they would have got him on something because they could not let somebody that large, as far as known to, to the larger society, get off from not paying taxes and, quote, unquote, beat the system. <laughs> they would uh, they would have found something, and they did, and, and, and now, unfortunately, he's in jail for it. But, um Forms, any yeah. Speaking on practical, present day stuff, any I'm down for any new idea for protesting. Cause this damn marching, this damn placarding, this damn petitioning, this damn voter registration drive and create initiatives with it. God. Ah! It only works for something on 
small local level. You can get initiatives passed. You can get referendums done for local level things. When you want to talk state, national, federal stuff, that stuff doesn't work, y'all. I I, don't know, I did that once for a friend of mine. She was in NAACP, and they were gonna, this was back when I was on the West Coast, and she wanted more folks to go out with her up to Sacramento and march on on the, the state building in Sacramento. So I went, and we marched through the streets and chanted the same old chants. Everybody been chanting since the 60s with probably the same placards folks had in the 60s. And we go up to this building on a Sunday, and it was empty. And, you know, there was about 100, 150 folks out there. And I'm just like, what did that accomplish? There was some decent food. Uh, folks got to meet that they ain't seen each other for a while. But what does that type of protest tactic actually accomplish in the long run? Can't we think of any new ways of protesting? Any new ideas in, in the last? We doing the same shit since the sixties, forty, fifty years. We doing the same thing, marching. Um, petitions, sit-ins, hunger strikes. I would never do a hunger strike against any Carcassonne, ever, 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 a hunger strike. So <laughs> I'm supposed to appeal to their moral conscience and what they say, what, what what our leaders say, our real leaders say they didn't even have morals nor conscience. So they're going to change their idea on something because, I've chosen to publicly let it be known that I'm not going to eat and protest for that. Really? Come on, y'all. So, yeah, the, the, the not paying the taxes thing as protest, that's something different that hasn't been tried before. I'd be down to trying that one. Um, finding out where certain folks who, who voted, quote-unquote, wrong on something, congressmen, senators, stuff like that, House representatives, local politicians, find out where they live and dump a whole bunch of garbage on their lawn as protest or something. That's something that I, I don't see folks trying. <laughs> I mean, we got to do different shit, different Offensive strategies. So, again, like I was saying last week, um, fighting the slave trade is broken up into three main parts, defensive, protective, and offensive. The defensive and offensive were five chapters apiece, and then the protective was two. Um, Evil Land, Slavery, and the Drums of War and Heroism by John Origi is one in the offensive strategies piece. A devotion to the idea of liberty at any price. Rebellion and anti-slavery in, in the Upper Guinea Coast in the 18th and 19th century by Ishmael Rashid. Strategies of the decentralized. Defending communities from slave raiders in coastal Guinea-Bissau, 1450 to 1815 by Walter Hawthorne. The struggle against the transatlantic slave trade, the role of the state by Joseph uh, Inikori, and then shipboard revolts 
African Authority in the Transatlantic Slave Trade by David Richardson. Those are the five chapters within the um, Offensive Strategies piece. Excuse me. So focusing first on the Igbo land, slavery, and the dreams of war and heroism, he's got a subchapter, subsection called um, Strategies Against the Slave Trade. And he shared um, – now, I know there's been some controversy recently over the authenticity of uh, – um, I always butcher his name, but uh, the Equiano, Equiano book. Uh, but assuming that is true, or assuming that larger parts of it is true, um, John Oroji shares that the memoir provides some insights <clears throat> on the diverse measures the Igbo were taking to prevent the depredations of the slave raiders. According to Equiano, he had undergone some military training, including shooting and throwing javelins. Presumably, he and other young boys, after their training, were expected during their adolescent years to become members of the local militia, responsible for defending their community against the incursion of slave raiders and other agents of violence. The militia were equipped with firearms, bows, arrows, broad two-edged swords, and javelins. Um, Equiano also revealed that some children acted as scouts, helping in the absence of their parents to um, recognize the movement of the slave raiders. So... So you see that um, specifically within Igbo um, land, if you will, uh, they were working on creating generations of young boys who could um, properly defend the communities, and they were having all different types of weapons trainings to, to do that. And uh, one good thing about this article is that he breaks it up into regions, if you will, um, so he's got it split up into the western Ebo, the northern Ebo area, um, over by the ravine and coastal town, southeast Ebo area, um, southern Ebo communities. And so depending on where you were, denoted um, how intense or not intense the Maasa and the raiding was in your particular area and then what tactics, you know, that were available to you. And so I guess um, this account of Equiano was in the western areas of Igbo land in western Africa. Um, then when we move to uh, northern Africa, have a few, excuse me, northern Igbo land in, in Nigeria, uh, like the Nuri in our eyes, the people of Enugu-Uku town were constantly exposed to a bomb raids, A-B-A-M. Um, the bomb people, it seems like, according to this article, were some of the folks who helped, and they were an intense group of helpers for the Caucasians. Uh, they would either, they, they would come in, they they were numerous, they were skilled in um, guerrilla tactics and warfare, and again, um, as I said last week, when you don't have uh, 
states larger groupings of communities to help protect against incursions when you're all just, you know, small communities with no communication or little communication in between each other. It's a lot easier for internal groups to come in and pick you off. And so these um, members of the ABAM, A-B-A-M, communities were known for doing that in Ebola. So now the... um, the Nugu-Ukwu people, their response was to adopt the strategy of the fox and wage a cold war against the bomb by avoiding direct military confrontations with them. The strategy involved dropping poison, food, water, and wine for the bomb in strategic routes and other places they often used to invade the town. This strategy terrified the Ibam, who mysteriously died in large numbers before an invasion and in consequence, they excluded the town from future military operations. So when they tried to go mess with the folks of, of the uh, Inugu-Uku town, uh, the people got together and was like, you know what, <laughs> all right, all right, we're going to send out some scouts, we're going to see where you're coming from, and they dropped poison, food, water, and wine. And so, they, <laughs> I mean, you see some wine on the road, you going to drink it? You know, I don't know. but <laughs> You ain't going to do that today. Why did you do it back then? But anyway, uh, they, they they died in such large numbers trying to come enslave them. They was like, you know what? Okay, we're going to go to some areas that we can easily, more easily go to. And uh, they eventually decided to leave them alone. Um, continuing on, they talk about um, a bomb incursions into Aqua, A-W-K-A, elicited a different response from its inhabitants. They mobilized themselves, forming a local vigilante group armed with Snyder rifles to repel the incursions. The sound of the guns alerted the local populations to an invasion and thus helped in aborting future further a bomb raids. The Aqua uh, also built high walls around their houses to foil kidnappers. Um, During slavery, the walls not only had preparations uh, for firing guns, but towers for monitoring the movement of intruders. So so there's a bit of, um, you know, uh, protective, excuse me, Defenses and offenses. They they refortified their village, as well as um, created areas where they could go on the offensive and, and had weapons to be able to protect themselves that way. And also, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't want it to seem like um, these strategies were like all inclusive. Either they were all protective or all defensive or all offensive. No, there was a large mixture. You know of at least the two major ones um, throughout. You did not have a lot of people doing the protective piece, doing the you took one of mine, let me send you three, and you bring that one back. You didn't have a lot of folks doing that. So you mainly had the defensive and the offensive strategies, and those were fluid throughout the different societies. Uh, Lastly here, some communities, however, reasoned that due to their limited manpower and material resources, they could not effectively defend themselves against the bomb. Such communities allied with their neighbors for their mutual defense. 
typical examples are the Omuchu, which constituted one, two, three groups. They were autonomous communities that are said to have collectively hired the services of a native doctor, not only to cement their unity, but to prevent a bomb incursions with his medicine called Ichi, which lived, excuse me, Ichi, which um, is translated into prevention or driving away. So it was from the medicine that the community um, derived its present common name, Umuchu, or Children of Ichu. Uh, the native doctor, the tradition further claims, buried symbols of Ichu in strategic places like um, the Central Market and other places to help ward off um, a bomb invasion. And and from from what it seems like, again, in those particular areas, it worked. Um, they would cross those barriers that had been protected by the keeping away, um, driving away medicine, and um, they would either go mad or they would eventually die or, in, in some cases, they were just led away from that area. You know, they'd get up to a certain point and then be like, eh, I think I'll go here. And so we usually get the stories of our medicines not working over and over again in the literature, so therefore we don't want to look at our, our traditions, our traditional spiritual systems, our traditional uh, medicinal uh, knowledge to use it for practical day because it's reinforced. Oh, and this story didn't work, and this book it didn't work, and this book it didn't work. If you do the digging, like if you're really a researcher, if you're really a reader and trying to get into this, I do a whole bunch of reading. <laughs> so if if you do that type of reading, you'll find out that there are uh, almost comparable stories to um, our spiritual systems and our traditional medicines actually working for us. Um, I don't want to get too far off the topic, but I know the um, Kenyan Land and Freedom Army, also called the Mau Mau, um, when I did research for them, not for them, I'm sorry, when I did research on them for a group, an organization that I was in, I came across um, multiple examples of, of the um, the the, the 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 traditional priest for lack of, for for lack of the specific kikuyu term um and the traditional medicine people again for lack of the kikuyu word um that were creating salves that that the people could rub on them um to stop bullets and in some cases that actually did work um I know that may sound crazy to some folks, but when you talk to actual folks who live in Kenya. And when you, you know, read a whole bunch of stuff from different areas um, and, and you keep hearing that over and over again, I'm inclined to believe it. Now, of course, you know, folks in the chat room or folks listening will be like, shit, let's get that now. <laughs> let's use that now. And why didn't it work, you know, in larger numbers then? Um, it takes time to get one. At the time when folks was coming in doing stuff, the larger areas, the larger mentality of people weren't listening to the traditional priests because almost everybody in every area of the continent that I've read about 
pre-European invasion, you will read stories about the the storytellers or 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 or, or the, the the priests of that area, or just somebody in the society had dreams, had visions of what was about to come, and they would go into the communities and tell them these dreams and share these visions with them. And unfortunately, in most cases, folks did not listen. Folks thought they was crazy. And 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 I think back to the book 2000 Seasons. If you have not read 2000 Seasons by Aikwe Arma, you are doing your brain cells a disservice. You are doing your historical knowledge of what's going on a disservice. 2000 Seasons by Aikwe Arma. There was a brother in there. It's, 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 it's a historical fiction. It's, it's a historical narrative. So it's fiction only in that names and places and dates have been changed, but it's historical in the larger scope of the events actually did happen. So it reads like a novel, but it is historical. There was a brother named Isanusi in that book. And he was one of the first folks to, to, to come into the area and be like, yo, <laughs> I, I had this vision about some folks about to come in, and they, they, these pale white folks are about to come in and just take over everything, and they got these crazy weapons, and what are we going to do? And they laughed him at the community. And he kept coming and kept coming. They eventually banned him to what they call the third grove. They ostracized him out the community. He was like, okay, fine, fuck it, I'll chill here, you know. And some folks did listen, and then they went and sought him out, and then, you know, then the story continues and stuff. But in almost every area on the continent that I have read that was affected by enslavement before the enslavement happened, folks had vision. Folks tried to tell the larger community of what was going on, and unfortunately we did not, we weren't listening. And unfortunately, at that time, we we were losing uh, we were losing know how, we were losing faith and trust in our own stuff um, to continue to move us forward. Or we had just gotten lazy, you know, after being around twenty, thirty thousand years or five thousand years, and you're just chilling generation after generation. You ain't expecting. Nothing, you know, this devastating, this mad and crazy, you know, to happen. And so someone come out the blue and say, hey, our way of life is about to be changed and millions of people are about to die. Uh, what are we going to do about it? You know, some of them, too many of them, unfortunately, thought they were crazy and didn't listen. And the Ma'afa happened. And now I'm here speaking to you in a European language instead of Chui, Ewe, Mande. Yoruba, etc. So yes, yeah, so that was just a little bit from um, John Oroji's piece. Then you also have um, Ishmael Rashid, chapter nine, devotion to the idea of liberty at any price. Now I really like how he starts off the chapter. Um, exaggerations, if not misperceptions, about Africans' complicity in the Atlantic slave trade and about their acceptance to servitude persists. 
And he's quoting that from a book um, by, by a guy named Thornton, who I think is John Thornton. And I want to get the actual title because when I was out in the West Coast in class, this this cracker was still being used as a textbook to this day. Yes. <laughs> African Africans in the making of the Atlantic world, 1400s to 1800s. First of all, there is no fucking Atlantic world. I hate that title. We are not ocean people. We came from Africa, and we are still Africans, Atlantic world. But they were still, when I left 10 years ago, they were still using one of his books within, with, as a required reading uh, within the African Studies Department. And I'm sure San Diego ain't the only one who was using John Thornton, um, Africa and Africans in the making of the Atlantic world. And so it's not just him, but I'm talking about him because um, – Ishmael did. Uh, exaggeration. It's just that we were complicit. If the focus is on our complicity within the slave trade, and the focus is in our um, acceptance of servitude. And so that particular book, um, as he points out, helped, helps that false idea and then gives fool as Gates ammunition to write his stupid piece that he just did. Continuing from Mr. Rashid, Africa, indeed, many scholars refuse to acknowledge the acts of resistance by enslaved Africans as part of a continuous thread of anti-slavery in the continent and still insist on seeing anti-slavery as emanating solely from the religious, economic, and philosophical ideas of 18th century European enlightenment. I heard some fool tell me if it wasn't for the abolition, the white abolitionists, we'd still be in slavery. I'm surprised I ain't in jail now from from, from attacking that person when they said that. Um, We resisted on the continent. We resisted on the boats. We resisted when we got here. We have we resisted at least all the way up to the sixties. And then integration fucked us up. And we really haven't been sane, stolen African people since the big integration push. The crew saw rebellion on every black face. But today, especially after the integration push, uh, they don't see that anymore. Um, This chapter will show that in the case of um, the Upper Guinea Coast, enslaved Africans routinely affirm their freedom, not by absorption into the slaveholder societies or by renegotiations of dependent relationships as argued by some scholars. But what they did was outright rejection and opposition to servitude. Let me repeat that. They affirmed their freedom not by absorption into the slaveholding societies, integration, not by renegotiation of dependent relationships, i.e., I'm dependent on you and all of the points 
there's 10 points in the negotiations. All 10 points at the beginning favored you over me, so I'm going to renegotiate. Um, let me get three of those points to favor me, and you can have the other seven. That's some shit that we do today. <laughs> so, so, so you can opt into the system, or if you're in the system, you can opt to make your life a little bit more comfortable in the system. And so these enslaved Africans are like, no, we're not going to go either one of those routes. We are going to outright reject and oppose servitude. The two rebellions in the region, the Mandingo religion, excuse me, the Mandingo rebellion in the 18th century and the Balali rebellion in the 19th, attest to the tenacity of the enslaved in resisting slavery and asserting their freedom. This chapter conceives of resistance as a plethora of spontaneous, organized, covert, or overt, I can't talk tonight, covert or overt, overt <laughs> actions designed to thwart the intentions of kidnappers, slave traders, and slaveholders. On the continuum, these actions encompass a large group of resistance forms, um, from the more violent to the not-so-violent. At point of capture and in, in the earliest stages of enslavement, the enslaved resisted primarily to reassert sovereignty control over one's self, mind, and body and to reestablish a sense of personal dignity. At the point of the commercial exchange, holding pens and transportation, Resistance took on an added layer as captives fought against the processes that attempted to regularize and legitimize the theft of their persons and fix the badge of bondage on them more securely. Within slaveholding societies where the weight of the hegemonic institutional ideological forces and relationships were being manipulated to reinforce the subjugation of the enslaved, they fought to break the hold of these forces and relationships. This chapter pays considerable attention to violent resistance because violence was integral to the Atlantic slave trade. Also, violent actions sometimes provide texts not readily available to these other actions and hence give historians wider scope to study the ideas and actions of the enslaved. Um, and then he goes on. I see we got about a minute or so left here. So, yeah, we'll we'll have a little bit of overtime. I'm going to share a little bit more. There's a few more chapters in here. I'll share some of that. Next week, we'll be talking about the book, um, If We Must Die. And uh studied a whole bunch of shipboard rebellions and revolts and we'll talk about, you know, some of those that succeeded and the majority of them that failed, but definitely talk about some of those that succeeded. Um, and so it'll be resistance to enslavement phase two um, during the passage or something like that. Cause, and there's more information out now. That's just one book talking about shipboard revolts. Like I shared, there's even a chapter in this book talking about shipboard revolts. So we resisted all ways around. So 
I'll play the closing and then uh, we'll continue. of European control works is that you have to accept a concept of reality which makes them superior. If you deny that, their thing will not work and they will lose their control. I love that. If we get some time, we're going to do a whole show dealing with Mama Marimba and some of her works and some magnificent quotes that I don't think that we really look at and deal with. Uh, you have to accept a concept of reality that makes them Caucasoid superior. If you deny that, their thing will not work, and they will lose their control. On every level, if you deny their their, their concepts of reality, what they call truth, by denying their stuff, then you have to plug it in with your stuff. They lose control over you. And so, again, tying into the resistance piece, if you deny that they have the ability to create a reality and then fit you in their reality, if you deny them saying that there is no other reality, there is no other way of doing things, this is the only way, so you just have to find a way to fit in this way. If you deny that talk, if you deny that existence, and then plug yourself back into what you were doing, plug yourself back into your reality before they came in and messed stuff up, and then, of course, modernizing it without westernizing it for whatever time period you're in, because, you know, hopefully two, three, four generations of folks will be listening to this. So I'm talking now and I'm talking for in the future. If you deny their lives and then feed yourself with the actual truth of, of your history, of who you are, of your culture, and then actualize that, it's one thing to know disparate, disconnected bits of African information. That's one thing. But it's a whole other thing to then use that information for your benefit. It's a, it, 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 it's a totally and I hate it when folks just want to throw stuff up. <laughs> oh well, we had cosmetics back in ancient Kemet, so I can use these cosmetics today. You got to go a bit deeper than that if you want to use that argument. How did we make them back then? And let's remake how, how let's remake what we did then. What were, were there any other reasons why we put it on, or did they have other reasons outside of just looking beautiful and beautifying themselves that they put it on? Uh, there's more questions that you have to ask. There's more context that you have to put it into. Excuse me. But folks will throw that shit up. Oh, well, we did this back then. Oh, we did that back then. So it's okay for me to do it now. When it's a completely fucking different context. In every aspect, it's completely different context of what's going on. So to just try to say, oh, we used to do that then, and it's okay for us to do it now. In the context we did it in, we controlled the context. 
We do not control the context now. We control the aspects. We control the um, items. We control the creation of the items. We don't control the aspects or creation of the items today. So, 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 just to make that silly argument is 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 is, is foolish. And, and if we could stop doing that, we'd actually move a lot forward in this re Africanization piece. But again, folks do not want to change. Folks do not want to change up what they're doing right now, but they want unity. But they want um, folks to get off their back. But they want all these things, but they want a black nation. They, 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 they want all these things, but we are not willing to change ourselves to get those things. And it, 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 so it, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Transformation will not take place in the larger context if transformation does not take place in the smaller context. Let me say it this way. Transformation will not take place in the macro environment if it does not take place in the micro environment. You. The micro environment is you. So if the transformation will not take place in the microenvironment, you, it will not take place in the macro environment, which is the larger society, period. So trying to do it as backwards, I ain't got to change, but I want the society to change. No, it's not going to work. Strategies of the Decentralized by Walter Hawthorne. In this piece, he is he, pretty well detailed. He walks through um, the, 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 the origins of the captives exported from the area. He's got a few numbers in here. Uh, and the big part about this piece is that it goes hand in hand with the next chapter. Because here you have strategies of the decentralized. And then the next chapter is um, the role of the state, um, the struggle against transatlantic slave trade. And so you sort of have to read these back to back because um, the role of the state piece is uh, is a real scathing piece against decentralized states. His argument, and I shared this last week, Joseph um, Inikori, or probably the first I isn't fully emphasized, but anyway, Inikori, his major argument is that since um, you had decentralized states, you had small territories, basically, and these small territories could not defend themselves against these large organized um, caucasoids, or large organized um, African sellout raiders who came in, and so you know, over and over again, you you find these smaller territories um, wiped out and taken into enslavement because they did not have the aspect of the state. They did not have a power of this larger state to protect them. Um, but now in the 
article before by Walter Hawthorne, Strategies of the Decentralized. He walks through different tactics that these decentralized folks did use. Um, Africans in the Guinea-Bissau region moved from difficult-to-defend savanna woodland zones and coastal upland territories to areas in which natural barriers provided protection and inhibited the maneuvering of armies. Um, again, you see defensive strategies. And they talk about many groups saw migration as the best way to avoid slavery and subjugation. Um, and, and again, you see that the, the, the theme over and over again in these chapters. You had some folks who chose the defense route, and you, you see some folks, even in Guinea-Bissau, they, they decided to, um, some of the smaller groups, eventually decided to uh, link up with other groups, and therefore you had larger numbers, and then they would go up against uh, the Caucasoids or uh, or um, Salad African Raiders. In part, the Balanta and other coastal groups resisted enslavement by exploiting the advantages offered by the region in which they lived. The coast offered more defenses and opportunities for counterattack against slave raiding armies and other enemies than did the Savannah woodland interior. So, again, a lot of these strategies were based um, on, of course, the um, willingness of the community, but it was largely um, based off of environment, where you were. Um, of course, um, well, I won't say of course, in large number of times, Folks who were right on the coast got ravaged because that's where Kukazoi set up camp. That's where they, they, they ships would come in. That's where they would build up the forts uh, to to enslave us. But as I, sh I think I shared last week, you had still, and, and I, I can't find the particular passage. I thought I had it marked. Uh, you did have folks. Oh, no, that's in the other book. You did have folks who were uh, attempting to attack the ships, you know, by, by throwing rocks or, or, or spears. Um, yeah, of course, that didn't help. Um, if, they, if they were able to get a hold of a cannon, you know, they would, they would um, shoot it at some ships. And I'm getting ahead of myself now because I'm thinking about the um, shipboard revolt books. But... Um, but I did share last week that um, within the forts you did have certain groups of people who would, especially at night, um, sneak to some of these forts and castles and whatnot and dungeons and, and get their way in. And, and a few were successful in breaking us out, you know, because they had us in the basements and chains and stuff like that. Um, so they would kill the guard or distract the guard, get them to do something else. And uh, we would sneak in, slip into these forts and castles and stuff, get down in the dungeons and, you know, let out um, 20, 50, 100 folks, you know, as many as we could at that particular time. Uh, so, again, we, we don't hear that side of the story. We don't hear about any of our successes, um, no matter how small and how trivial. I get tired of hearing <laughs> all of the, the defeats. So, so when I can hear 
some stories of our successes, I'm going to definitely try to uh, share that and put it out. Um, the Balanta people, the Balantas did a whole bunch of different tactics to um, get weapons to defend themselves. Um, I'm reading in this particular piece, they may have had wars with other folks in the in the in the surrounding village, you know, beforehand, and they would take them into servitude, and so they would unfortunately sell some of those folks to get some guns. Um, but so on one hand, you know, it's bad. You know, you 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 fight against some people, they lose. You take them into servitude. The Europeans come in, and you hear about them wiping out all these villages of people, and so you need a way to defend yourself. And so one of the things that you use to defend yourself, um, you, you you need guns. And so how are you going to get the guns? And so, hey, we just beat up this other group, and we got these quote-unquote disposable people here. Let's trade them for some guns so we can defend ourselves against you know, these these um, hordes of Europeans and raiders that are coming in. That, that That's a tricky dynamic right there. Um, but they did it in, in, in some aspects. Not totally. You know, not, that wasn't the whole thing that they did. But um, that's one of the things that they did. Try to mark all this stuff, you know, ahead of time, and then it all doesn't come out like you wanted it to. They also, you know, to garner weapons, they also um, offered non non slave items for exchange. So they did use cattle, they did use salt, a um, variety of uh, agricultural products were in demand for regional and long-distance markets. And so they say, though these goods were not as valuable as captives, they could they could be and were traded for weapons, iron, and a variety of other commodities because, you know, if they could get weapons, if they could get the iron, then they could make them into weapons and possibly guns and swords and stuff to help fight off the Portuguese specifically for um, Guinea-Bissau at this time. So, yeah, so they were going through, again, different ways to protect themselves. And, you know, we can, in hindsight now, quibble over some of them, but, again, just to get out that we did not happily go into slavery, uh, we did not, you know, Okay, they're going to get us. They're more powerful. All right. Uh, I ain't going to fight. No. <laughs> we we had meeting after meeting after meeting on the continent to figure out what the hell to do, what would be the best way to go about this. And and we shared the defensive, we shared the protective, and we're sharing some of the offensive ones that we went through now, um, that, we, that, 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 that we went through tonight. So, so there was a lot of thought and a lot of stuff that was being done to um, 
In the politically decentralized Guinea-Bissau region, communities pursued a number of strategies against the slave trade. They migrated to easily defended coastal locations, adopting, adopted new agricultural styles, concentrated their houses into uh, tabanicas or larger larger communities, basically, um, and found ways to purchase weapons and irons from which to forge them. Um, but just how successful were these strategies? If 19th century population estimates are any indication, at least one decentralized society on the slavery frontier of one of the West Africa of one of West Africa's most important producers of slave exports, the Kabu K A A B U, were extremely successful in defending its members and providing sustenance for them. Um, slave exports continued well into the 19th century, but um, one of the governors writes basically that um, we're going to leave this group of people alone. Um, yeah. So, like I said, this chapter and the other chapter about the role of the state goes hand in hand because while Encoro um, and his piece on the state talks about it was easy it was easier to take the decentralized people into enslavement because they did not have the um, mechanism of the state to protect them in the chapter before it the one I've been reading from right now he walks through again at least this one particular area um, a multitude of different strategies that these decentralized or non-state or stateless societies I should say had um, to defend themselves And just like with anything Some were more successful than others But they were, the, the, the stateless societies Were not completely and wholesale At the um, disposal of These full-ass Europeans And sellouts Just to come in and do Whatever they wanted to do with them So yeah so that's just a, a, a quick walkthrough of this book. I, 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 I advise everyone, if you want to look into and try to understand a little bit deeper um, how we fought hordes of Caucasoids and their sellout Africans on the continent, how we fought them to, to stop the Mahasa, you have to get fighting the slave trade, West African slavery, excuse me, West African strategies, edited edited by um, Sylvain Joff. And not only is this book um, invaluable for the 12 chapters that walks through the different strategies that we use, it's also invaluable in the notes section. Um, each chapter Following each chapter is a note section where, you know, they had a bibliography and everything like that. And there's quite a bit of information out there that we hear nothing about, um, whether it's journal articles or full-length books on us resisting on the continent. Um, and 
and and and in all the different ways to read this that I didn't go into. I had a few things marked. Uh, well, I shared the piece about the um, group got together and they um, used they they got the native doctor to um, create um, traditional medicines and stuff to help ward off invasions and things like that. But probably the best example of us using our traditional medicines, our traditional spirituality to ward off invasion is the um, Haitian Rebellion. And, and I'm bringing that up because in January, January 4th, I think, uh, first week of January is probably will be will be, you know, the anniversary of the Haitian Rebellion. But also something that we should probably, and I, and and they do it in certain parts in um, Louisiana, in New Orleans, but January 8th, 1811, was, again, the um, largest um, enslaved African revolt in America. Um, it did not succeed, unfortunately, but... Um, we we still need to know about that aspect of resistance. And when we get into phase three, and I talk about um, American Uprising in that book, there's a lot of good information in there that I'll share with folks. But January, excuse me, January 8th, 1811, was when um, that revolt went down. And, um, again, even though it wasn't successful, they had successes within it, and I still think there are a lot of examples that we can take and use and add to our resistance library and our resistance information um, for our own personal benefit to pass it on to the children um, and then again to see to Y'all, y'all know where I'm going to call upon those energies um, when you're doing your libations to get that strength, that's that that spiritual, culturally specific spiritual strength to um, nation build and to resist and do what we need to do. Um, folks that don't want to talk about religion and just let folks do whatever religion that they're doing, you are attempting to get strength from a foreign system to fight those same foreigners. We weren't originally Christians. We weren't originally Muslims. But we're going to attempt to call upon gods and, 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 and entities within Christian and Islam to fight against Caucasians and Arabs. That doesn't make too much sense to me. I'm sorry. And again, there's no historical precedence that it actually worked. But with Haiti, <laughs> throw away the image of the white man's God. That's that's what Bukman told them the day before. And they had a major ritual. And they called upon the um, um, Haitian Loa. And, and, and 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 they called upon some Akan um, deities, and they called upon some Yoruba um, energies. Because because oh, I think Toussaint was Toussaint Leverture. I think he was Yoruba, and I think Bukman was Akan, or I might have it reversed or something like that. 
but when we call, when we use our spiritual ways, um, for real, for real, of one mind and of one worldview, we actually do have, check this now, we actually do have historical record to show that when we did that, it worked. We have no historical evidence to show that us calling upon God's given to us by Christianity and Islam and fighting against white folks and Muslims actually work. There, there's no historical information to back that up. But we do have historical information to back up when we call upon our spiritual forces that it worked. But we don't want to do it now. We want to claim Christianity and blacken it up and do it. We got... Uh, We don't want to deal with that. It's everybody's personal choice. If we had to, see, here's the thing, and I'm getting off topic now. I'm starting to ramble. I'll shut up in a minute. If we took on Christian and Islam of our true own free will, then I really wouldn't have, you know, that big of an argument against it. We took it on. It was a system that's out there, and we took it on, and it's not ours, but we, you know, consciously did this, no force, no nothing. We did it. It's like, okay, cool. But if you go back to the book I've written and the three shows, how to make a Negro Christian. I've done the research to show <laughs> that 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 especially within Christianity, it was not a choice. The drums were banned, our spiritual ways were banned, we had to hide it within Catholicism, uh the the languages were banned, all all of our stuff was banned and they gave us this shit called Christianity. This is your only route to God. And it didn't catch on until about the 1900s after we started, after we had, you know, a good 100 years, 50, 100 years of it being beat over our head in, in, in within the slavery institution. And then when we started going to their schools, and then when we were teaching ourselves, the primary way that we taught ourselves how to read and write was through the Bible, and it was black clergy and black preachers who were our first teachers, and it was white missionaries who were our first teachers on, on, on learning English. And so coming into this country, our very first indoctrination into education into this Western world was through their religion. So therefore, it, it, we did not take it on consciously and of our own will and just because we wanted to. That shit was given to us to take power away from us. And, 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 and due to that, we have not accomplished one one millionth of what we have with Christianity than before we knew it existed. And so I, I, I know that just coming back home spiritually is not the total answer 
to to what we need to do, it's a damn good first, second, third, and fourth step in that direction because it gives you a different way of looking at reality. It gives you different spirit forces and different spirit energies to call upon to uh, move forward what you need to do. It gives you a different way of interacting with the environment. It gives you a different way of interacting with people, with people that look like you and with people that don't look like you. It gives you a totally different way of dealing with that. Within Christianity, you're supposed to love your enemies and turn the other cheek. At least within, well, I'll just pick one, the one within traditional Lacan, when you pour the libation that I do at the beginning, you know, that's a truncated, um, abridged <laughs> a pie or libation. But if you go to to, to a traditional area, there's like five parts to the libation, to the apai, and one of the parts in there is wishing death upon your enemies. In the libation, you hear me now, the libation is done at, at every large ceremony, at every large gathering, at every large event, at funerals, at weddings, at, it, it's, you go home, go to the continent, you'll see it in the traditional areas, in the rural areas, you'll see it done everywhere. Depending upon what the event is, within the apae, there is a section for calling upon death of your enemies, or if not, at least death, getting your enemies skewed from away from harming you. So, so I'm trying to see, are you seeing the, the contrast and the difference here? In our system, an everyday ritual or, or, or an every major event ritual, within that ritual is to call upon um, destruction or displacement or, or, or disorientation of your enemies. Versus within Christianity, you're supposed to love and turn the other cheek. I, I, I hope you see that dichotomy there, that 180 degrees apart dichotomy there. That can't be syncretized. That can't be meshed together. Some, no. So when we do get into, get back into our traditional spiritual systems, while it's not the answer, it is a answer, and it is a big part of the answer. It's not the total answer. I don't think I've ever said that, <laughs> and if I have, I'm sorry. I've never said that, but it's a big part to the answer because it gives you a 180-degree different way of looking at, interacting with, and being in the universe and in existence. And so I'm going to say it one more time. When we called upon our systems to, to ward off enslavement, our best, uh, one example of success, of complete success of that, is the Haitian Rebellion. There is no... <laughs> None that I've come across. If, if if you've come across it, please, Kamau, K-A-M-A-U, 301 at yahoo.com, send it to me. There has been no group of stolen Africans or Africans on the continent that have been fighting against Caucasoids using, that, using Christianity and 100% got their freedom. Nowhere, none, zero. 
If I'm lying, shoot me some email and prove me wrong. But right now, as far as I know, we have never gotten 100 complete, 100% complete autonomy and sovereignty using a foreign spiritual system. It's not the answer, but it's a answer, and it's a large part of the answer. So I've rambled enough. Next week, resistance to enslavement phase two. Um, Probably on the slave ships, that's what I probably called it. And we'll be focusing again on the book, If We Must Die, dealing with um, dealing with some of the shipboard revolts that we engaged in. Um, unfortunately, most of them were unsuccessful and did not work. But we did have some that were successful. And what I call successful <laughs> is we got back home or... Or 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 we took the boat down to you know uh, to Central and South America, and then ran off into the hinterlands or something. So for me, Amistad wasn't a success because we took over the boat, but when we got there, they got us back again. And then we needed the white lawyers to come and help us out. No. I'm looking, success is complete African agency and total African sovereignty and autonomy. That's why Caucasoids won't make a movie about any ship, about a real story about a ship that we took over and then took back to the continent or took to Central and South America and then the the, 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 the enslaved population got got off and, you know, Went into the hinterlands and mingled in with the population there and got and got regained their freedom. You won't get that movie, but you will get the Amistad movie, <laughs> which which eventually says, "Niggas, you can't do nothing without Caucasians." You'll get that movie. You got that movie. We got that. One. We 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 won't get the other one. So yeah, that is next week. Thanks to everyone who's downloading and listening live and in the chat who were in the chat room and uh, please click all the click the three books and the um, links and ads is on the pages even if you don't buy anything just clicking them helps your brother out. Oh shoot! <laughs> I don't know if anybody listen this one um, for everyone in the D.C. area. Um, Thursday, December 30th, 6 to 9 at the Tree of Life Public Charter School, 2315 18th Place Northeast. Uh, the UNIA will be having their um, annual uh, Neonite Kwanzaa presentation. And yours truly will be there. Um, and they they do this every year, and it's it's real. Now this is a show of unity. This this is some emoji as far as getting the different groups to come together. And again, in celebratory things and in band aid things, you know, it's fine. Everyone come together and show unity and all that sort of stuff. But in larger things, 
we need cultural cohesion. But yeah, so um, universal improvement through reafghanization and nation building. That's the theme. Again, it's this Thursday, December 30th, 6 to 9, and it's free. Um, Tree of Life Public Charter School, 2315-2315, 18th place, northeast, up in D.C. Um, they've got um, Anaconda Comfo, who's one of the um, guest speakers. Um, there'll be some music, arts and crafts for the children. There'll be some vendors. Uh, and and it's a real good thing. Support the International Red, Black, and Green African Liberation Flag Campaign. Um, so, yeah, it's hosted again by the UNIA um, Division 330 chapter. Um, UNIA still lives. It's still going strong. Uh, got issues like every other organization, but it's still around, um, doing good work. And so if you're in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, you hear this in time, you know, come on through. Thursday, December 30th, 6 to 9, free admission, Tree of Life Public Charter, 2315, 18th place, Northeast. Um, If you're Mount Questionet, Washington, D.C., 20018. Come on out. Let's talk about NIA, Purpose. All right, y'all. Next week, Resistance to Enslavement, Phase 2. Abibi Fahodie, Total African Liberation. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.